Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, friends and neighbors, and welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. You know, even for veteran White House reporters, it's tough covering the coronavirus story for several reasons. One, because it changes so fast. Every day the number of cases goes up, as does the number of deaths, and every day new steps are taken to try to contain it. Two, because there are conflicting signals sent by city, state, and federal officials about what people ought to do. Go to work or stay home, go to restaurants or not, wash your hands or not. And three, and most troubling of all, for two weeks, Donald Trump insisted we were in total control of this virus, but now suddenly he says we could be in serious trouble until July or August. So what's really happening? Well, to find out, many of us turn to reporters who know a lot more about public health issues, and on that front, nobody is better informed than Dan Diamond, editor of Politico's Pulse a widely respected and must-read morning briefing on healthcare politics and policy. We caught up with Dan Diamond on Monday morning, the day after the CDC reported over 3,400 cases in the United States with 65 deaths so far, and the day after the CDC recommended canceling all gatherings of more than 50 people for the next eight weeks, President Trump now says no more than 10. Dan Diamond, these are very busy days. It's very good of you to uh, take some time with us. Thanks for joining us. I'm pleased to be here, Bill. So, Dan, I was in the briefing room yesterday at the White House. I heard the President of the United States say about the coronavirus, it's something we have tremendous control of. And then I heard Dr. Anthony Fauci come to the microphone and say, the worst is yet to come. Which is it? When facing a national medical emergency, I might trust the doctor over the president. We are staring down a pretty big problem right now, and the president has consistently underestimated privately and publicly the threat facing the nation. And what impact does that have on getting on top of this crisis? Well, Bill, I, I think it does start from the top. There have been a number of stories that I've written for Politico about the administration's response. Some aspects are direct from the White House. The White House could have chosen to be more aggressive from the jump back in January when HHS Secretary, the Health Secretary Alex Azar, first brought this to the president as something that he thought should be a priority. But there were senior officials in the White House who didn't think it was as big a deal as Azar was making it out to be. The president himself wasn't sure that this was going to be a threat. For weeks, the U.S. response was played down. I also think just taking cues from the top is essential when there is a national crisis. And the president's rhetoric 
has led some percentage of Americans to believe that this isn't a problem when every medical expert around the world is warning that this is one of the biggest threats in years to health systems in every country. And I guess the question also is how prepared we are to deal with it. I notice in your political pulse uh, today, uh, I see the statement, uh, the system isn't prepared for what's coming. And yet again, in the Rose Garden Friday, I heard the president say, quote, no nation is more prepared, no nation is more equipped. Again, what's the reality? I think it would be nice if if those things were true, that the U.S. system was the most prepared and the most equipped. But in many ways, we are not. We do not have the same command and control structure that some nations like Singapore, like China, have been able to bring to bear to lock down the population quickly, to impose a lot of curbs. It's been much more piecemeal so far in the United States. Now, some of that is good. We're a democratic nation, and there's a lot more free will and individualism. But when it comes to preparing for a crisis like this, it means that the response has been much more scattershot. I also think, Bill, we have been behind on some pretty basic things. One of the most important has gotten a lot of attention in recent weeks after my colleague uh, David Lim at Politico wrote the first story. Most of the labs around the country did not have working testing. Mm on coronavirus. And and that has just left us flying blind at a time when we have limited resources and not knowing where to focus those resources is a really big problem. The other way that we're not prepared is frankly our hospital capacity. I used to work in the hospital consulting industry, uh, not as a direct consultant, but, but kind of doing research and writing. The concern that hospitals had for years was that they had too many beds. They had too much space, and they were losing money on these empty units. So they started cutting them down maybe 20 years ago. There's been a lot of consolidation. Hospital systems have generally gotten tighter as more patients have been shifted to outpatient procedures. That's that's good if you're a patient who doesn't want to spend a night in a hospital, but that's going to be very tough at a moment when many of these coronavirus patients will need extended care and there aren't enough beds at current projections to serve all of them. I saw from the CDC on Friday, uh, they projected on your point that perhaps as many as 2.4 million to 21 million Americans might require hospitalization. Uh, They say our current capacity is 925,000 beds total in this country. That, that sounds right to me, though I don't have the numbers in front of me. The, the theory being, Bill, that if there is a surge in patients, a few things would happen. One, all the other beds would be as cleared up as possible. So if I need my elective mm-hmm. surgery on my knee uh, injury, or if there's anything that can be pushed off, those things would be delayed, canceled, so we would have beds available to the maximum ability we can. A second tactic that I've heard from hospital leaders that I've talked to is simply renting space in hotel rooms or mm. in, in public uh, arenas, places where there, there could be an opportunity to set up almost wartime makeshift hospitals if we need those. And then I think there's also going to be a major push to just keep people home if they don't need critical care. That will be tough because I, I think many Americans 
get nervous, understandably, when they have symptoms that could be coronavirus. But there will probably be some national education campaign of who should be going to the hospital versus who should, if someone is unlucky enough to get these symptoms, just ride things out at home. And one one final point, those projections from the CDC, those those big numbers certainly could come to pass. But there is also a very good chance that if we are severely limiting movement, if we're putting these quarantines into place and locking down businesses, we can slow and change the trajectory of this in a very big way. And that could be good, not just for the American people and the hospital industry, but frankly, for the scope of this outbreak around the world. Uh, And that is one point that Dr. Fauci makes every time I've heard him, which is we're trying to flatten the curve, uh, to your point. But is this, and in the Democratic debate between Vice President Biden and Senator Sanders uh, Sunday evening, uh, particularly Vice President Biden talked about the use of the military, and one thing they could do is build temporary hospitals and tents or whatever, that they're prepared to do this. Uh, Is that the case, and have we ever done that before? Well, it, it is quite possible that there will be a military mobilization Uh, which we've seen before in public crises, I believe in Hurricane Katrina uh, or or other major disasters, the military does get involved and do a lot of field work, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, We we may well need that, given the threat to health workers and the demands on the system. And I will say that that is something likely in the offing in the days and weeks to come, just given how fast— things are moving and how much more aggressive the nation's response has ramped up to be. Do we have enough uh, respirators? Do we have enough ventilators? Or are there enough in the supply chain to, uh, if needed? Frankly, probably not. Uh, the, mm. the condition that results from serious coronavirus infections is essentially respiratory failure. People just can't breathe. And the need for ventilators and intubation has become paramount. In many cases, I I was talking to some uh, medical workers I know, there's now a move to be more aggressive at at putting people uh, onto tubes and and helping them with breathing even before their problems get really severe, because that way you're you're, uh, staving off the potential problem and you're reducing the risk that when that person's illness is more severe and a worker's then trying to intubate that person, it's more likely that someone who's coughing and spitting up a lot then could infect Mm -hmm. someone else. So doing it early. But that will just mean more strain on the current resources. Hospital leaders are really worried about this. And the Trump administration has not been clear with how many ventilators and other crucial supplies are in the system. The message that the administration has been putting out, even on Fox News, which is historically very friendly to the administration and, and has not been happy. Uh, Hosts like Tucker Carlson have not been happy with this response. But the response has been, we don't want to get to a point where we're tapping our emergency supplies. So let's try and keep as many people out of the hospital as as we can, which which is the right answer in terms of the priority. But I think that's telling. We just don't have the supplies right now. And the administration is feverishly working on trying to boost the supply chain and, and get these supplies in case we need them in the coming weeks. Again, here on the Bill Press Pod, we're talking with Dan Diamond, author of The Political Pulse. If you uh, haven't uh, and are are not a subscriber to The Political Pulse, if you haven't signed up for it, you should do so right now, particularly these days. It's up every morning. Dan, if I may ask you, 
What about testing? Let's talk a little bit about testing. What is the status today? Um, the White House promises, uh, again, it was there Friday and Sunday. Uh, they kept saying, this week we're going we're gonna to really expand the availability of testing. What's, what's the status today, and how ex- soon do you expect it to get better? The Trump administration has been running consistently behind on virtually every testing promise. We have been in the dark on where the problems are, and that has caused all sorts of downstream effects for not just where public health workers can prioritize their response, but also how urgent the administration thought this problem was. And and when there was mm-hmm. no testing and and no real results other than a few cases that had been identified, that created a false sense of security. I think now the administration is trying aggressively to get more testing online. There are basically three different kinds of test bill. One is the testing that is done by the government, either at the CDC or through what are known as public health laboratories. This was the testing that broke down about a month ago, where labs just could not use the CDC test. It didn't work. That created all kinds mm-hmm. of delays as, as officials waited around for the new CDC testing. There have been more tests coming online from individual hospitals and clinical labs. These tests could have been brought online weeks ago, but they were uh, caught up in bureaucracy. President Trump has said that these tests were caught up in uh, President Obama's bureaucratic restrictions. That is not true. The restrictions were actually uh, signaled by the Trump administration, and the Trump administration could have waived those restrictions at any time, um, but just didn't do it until more recently. So hospitals are now finally bringing their own tests online. And then the biggest testing change is likely going to be what was announced at the end of last week when companies like Quest and LabCorp uh, got into the mix and said they would use their big automated systems to start doing tests at scale. So we are starting to get the testing capacity. And I know, having talked to officials in the administration, they, they recognize this is both a practical problem as well as one person told me, like a psychic problem of just all the stress and fear it creates not to know what's going on, but it's just running way, way behind where it should be. We are, what, a month behind, would you say, where we should be? It it depends who you ask. I think an optimist would say that we're two weeks behind. A a realist might say we're four or five weeks behind. Isn't the reality, one other question, you mentioned the problems initially with the CDC tests but and before that, um, we were offered, as I, my understanding, tests already developed and proven to work by the World Health Organization. Why didn't we take those? That has been a question that I am still trying to solve in my own reporting. I've said this before on radio. If anyone knows the answer, my, my email <laughs> is open and my messages are open. But I will say, Bill, that some have cautioned me this is not the biggest problem. Yes, there was a working test that we could have tapped in retrospect that might have solved many problems. There were uh, health officials, though, who worried that that test was giving off too many false positives and that the U.S. CDC, which historically has been really good, historically has come up with high-quality testing, that we would be better served just going with the CDC. Um, 
So it has been a defensible decision, even by people who historically criticized the administration, but it still remains one of the biggest mysteries. And there, there, there might be more to the story, or it might just be, we thought we could do it better, and we didn't. Now, I'm just a layman, very much of a layman when it comes to public health issues, but I keep wondering this, and I'd love to ask you, if we are not testing or don't even have the capacity to test as many people who maybe should be tested, isn't it true we don't really know how many cases of coronavirus there are in the United States? You may be, right? you may be a layman, but that is, that is the accurate expert perception. There are estimates that the number of cases is anywhere from 10,000 to 50,000, maybe even higher at this point, as, as we talk at the beginning of this week. But that means a, a couple big things. One, it means that the cases are spreading now in community outbreaks that officials still don't realize the extent of. It also means that the coronavirus is seeded enough, it's in enough places, that even if the United States takes big steps, like cutting off travel from Europe uh, most recently, mm -hmm. it, it probably won't do as much as the move to cut off travel from China did six weeks ago. The follow-up to that, it seems to me, again, uh, layman speaking, is that once we do start more testing, that the numbers of cases in this country is going to spike. And we have to be prepared for that, I guess, right? Right. I mean, a public health official might say, this is a good thing. The more that we know, even if that means higher numbers, the better ultimately for the public health response. But the true number is so much higher, Bill, than the official statistics that mm -hmm. have been put out. I've talked to doctors, uh, health workers around the country that I know or, or have reached out to me who say again and again, we have five cases, 10 cases, 20 cases, and in one case, 40, you know, 49, 50 cases. And these numbers are not showing up in the public accounting that is put out by the CDC or pointed to on various websites. That's because of the lack of testing. It's also because of the lack of coordination right now. And the true number when it comes out, I think will surprise some people who have been relying on the official statistics. How effective is the drive-through testing? Uh, is, it, uh, is it as good as going into your doctor's office? My understanding is that the drive-through testing that has been used uh, in South Korea, for instance, is, is good in that it allows, it allows someone, say me, say I'm worried that I have coronavirus. I can get in my car. I don't have to expose anyone else. I drive up. The, the people in the protective equipment administer the swab, and I get some clarity rather quickly about whether I need to quarantine or or perhaps maybe my symptoms aren't from coronavirus. So it provides some value there. But my understanding is that the drive-through testing is not as uh, thorough or, or perhaps as accurate as some of the testing that might be done in a lab. There might be a higher rate of false positives. It's still far, far better than the current system where we're just operating often in the dark. And we're talking again with Dan Diamond, author of Politico's Pulse. We will take a quick break and then resume our conversation. We'll be right back here on the Bill Press Pod. Today's podcast with Dan Diamond brought to you by the Laborers International Union of North America. 
Under the leadership of President Terry O'Sullivan, the laborers are half a million strong, active in building infrastructure, roads, bridges, public transit, active in energy projects from solar plants to wind farms to pipelines, and also including many government employees, healthcare workers, sanitation workers, and mail handlers. Check out their website at liuna, L-I-U-N-A dot org. We thank them for their great work building this country and for their support of the Bill Press Pod. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Again, joined by Dan Diamond, author of Politico's Pulse, uh, the every morning report on healthcare politics and policy. Dan, let me ask you, is should there be any hope in development of a vaccine for the coronavirus? Is it underway and how soon might we expect it? Bill, there there is always hope. And I think in this case, there's valid hope. The amount of energy that has been redirected to finding a corona vaccine, coronavirus vaccine is real. And there are apparently some promising lines under investigation. The challenge is just getting those into trials. Uh, there's been talk of skipping some animal trials and trying human trials. That still mm-hmm. requires months, a year. So we have this problem in front of us. A vaccine is not going to solve it now. The hope would be the vaccine is ready to solve the problem of this virus recurring. We have, in terms of personal response uh, and public response, um, we've seen a lot of uh, different levels of reaction 
uh, as we speak, um, last evening, the CDC recommended that there be no gatherings of 50 people or more for eight weeks. Uh, that takes us through Passover, through Easter, through Ramadan. Uh, are, are we likely to see a national shutdown in the United States, such as France and Italy have done, where they've closed all restaurants and bars? So I, I want to say that as we are talking, uh, and as we're talking on Monday morning, the right. possibility of a shutdown is absolutely out there. I, I would not be surprised if that is coming in the the days that are looming. Um, there have been hesitations in the White House for weeks about doing too much here. I think the mentality has shifted to the more that can be done to keep this from becoming a major problem. That's where we need to go. But it's it's been a fight against inertia and some competing political impulses for much of January and February, now that we're into the thick of this in March, the mentality has shifted. And I do think a dramatic action could be in the offing. And it seems for the moment that the action taken, the uh, initiative is coming from mayors and coming from governors, uh, not so much from the White House. Is that a deliberate administration strategy to put the governors and the mayors out in front or just an indication that the White House can't make up its own mind. Well, Bill, I, I have been trying to figure this out for some time. On the one hand, there were aggressive folks in the administration who pushed for that China travel lockdown back in January. That was a big, dramatic step. I wrote about it at the mm -hmm. time, the dramatic escalation of response. The challenge was what came after, and there was less urgency around ramping up the testing or taking steps to make sure that hospitals would be prepared. There was a lot of, I think, wishful thinking among some senior officials that we would not have the problems that have now broken out in Italy and elsewhere. There was a lot of faith in the low numbers. What that meant was the mentality in the White House became more passive, even at a time when mm -hmm. local officials started to become more alarmed. And local officials, especially all the way down to the county level, often have a lot more flexibility in thinking about a decision because their populations are smaller, their considerations are more limited. When the White House decides to move, it does affect everything. It affects the economy. It affects national sure. confidence. So there are reasons why the, the administration might hang back. The, the issue, I think, is whether the administration was too passive and too confident in its own best-case scenarios at a time when a little more worst-case scenario thinking would have prepared the United States better. Now, this is not the first pandemic we have experienced. Um, maybe it's the one we, we, we remember the most because we're in the middle of it now, but there was Ebola, there was the swine flu, there was the flu way back, what, 1914 or so. But in the last week, we've seen the closure of Disneyland, Disney World, St. Patrick's Day canceled, spring training canceled, March Madness canceled, the NBA canceling the rest of its season. The Broadway closed for 30 days. Have we ever seen a shutdown like that before? Uh, what's your history? Oh, certainly certainly not in my lifetime. And, and I, right. <laughs> I, I don't know a precedent beyond some historical dramatic event of uh, plague or, or um, war. And even that is, is different just because it's such a different time. I... I was struck, Bill, there was a moment that, that I will remember, I think for the rest of my days, of watching President Trump 
almost a week ago, give a primetime address in the Oval Office. It was it was off a teleprompter. He was really restrained. It was an unusual speech from the president, who mm-hmm. normally is is so freewheeling. But it was the first time after weeks of me covering the story that I thought, and my sources told me, he gets it now. He he understands the threat. He recognizes we have to ramp up. And within minutes of his speech, the NBA suspended its season. Tom Hanks, the actor, announced he had coronavirus. Right. There was just a cavalcade of of different news items around the outbreak. And that was the moment, I think, where the nation really started to get it. And in the past four or five days, we have now seen all kinds of voluntary actions and, and involuntary uh uh, responses from businesses that have been told in various places to either cut back uh, or gatherings that have been postponed or canceled, especially in California, which has been really aggressive. So it, it's an unusual time, but probably the right approach if we are going to change the trajectory, change the trajectory of this outbreak. And I'd like to, to end, Dan, with asking you the question I think everyone is asking himself or herself these days is, what the hell should I be doing about this? Um, and, but let me ask first, so how do people get it? I mean, how can you get the coronavirus? Do you have to be exposed to someone who just came back from Europe or China? Not anymore. Uh, that, that, was, that was the working theory initially, that the virus was only going to be spread by people who had been in a hot spot. Even if they weren't showing right. symptoms, they could be asymptomatic. But at this point, Bill, it's it's community spread. It could be anywhere. I, I might have it and not know it. The possibility of transmission is, is heightened if you have close encounters with people. And that could mean sitting across a, a crowded bar table and talking back and forth and without knowing it, the respiratory droplets being inhaled by mm-hmm. coughing, sneezing, or even just breathing, uh, touching these these germs, which are pretty hardy and can live on surfaces for days, and then touching your your mouth or face, the virus is in many ways still a mystery. But what is not a mystery is how how easy it can be spread in big groups, and that's one reason why there's been such a push to lock down on these big groups. And I've I've tried with my family and friends to be to be a little bit of a Cassandra and say, look, like you're better off doing less than more. And maybe, maybe we'll look back and say we worried too much, but that's a much better outcome than looking back and saying we didn't do enough. So what are your recommendations uh, that what people should do? Not go to restaurants, not use public transit, wash their hands, sh- don't shake hands. I mean, wh- what's your list of um, precautions that people should take? I'm only a health reporter. I'm, I'm not a doctor. I would defer to other members <laughs> of my family on that. But, but I, I will tell you what I have done, which I, okay. is informed by my conversations from the past couple months. One is we do have an emergency supply of food and medicine at our house. I realize it's harder and harder to obtain those things as many Americans around the country run to the grocery store or the pharmacy. But it's still not too late to just have some emergency supplies if things get trickier if if there are quarantines or shutdowns that make it harder to get out. We also take care to wipe down our door handles uh, when walking in and walking out. Um, Those can be vectors for transmission. Uh, I I do wash my hands thoroughly. I have made sure to 
avoid taking public transportation. I'm doing this interview from my house as opposed to the Politico studio. I, I assume I'll be spending a lot of time right. in my house in, in the days and weeks to come. And I also think, Bill, that the idea of getting together with anyone who might be vulnerable is is something we all need to be careful about. My parents, I love them dearly. I want to check on them as, as need be. But they're they're older, they're more vulnerable. I want to make sure that I am not the person unknowingly bringing an illness into their homes. So taking steps, even with family members and friends, not to not to hug and kiss and spend too much time together unless we are absolutely sure that we're not carrying this thing. Is it safe to get on a plane? Would you get on a plane? I would not. Uh, my my father, who um, is older, did take a flight yesterday despite my strong objections. Um, and I was talking to a health official who shared a similar story about his stubborn father. Uh, it, it's not something I would do for myriad reasons, one being just waiting around in the airport and some of the lines that have been shown on, on social media, people just trying to get through clearance and being tested. If you're waiting in a line with people for two hours and it's relatively jammed up, that could be a very easy way to transmit the disease. So it's not even being on the plane. It's just everything that it takes to get to the plane. Similarly, if you're sitting on the plane next to someone who may have the virus but may be asymptomatic, that's not a great situation. And the more we can do to space out our encounters with each other, the better it probably is for our personal health, as well as slowing the progression of this disease. And finally, Dan, how long before you and I could have a conversation like this and talk about the coronavirus as a past event and how we handled it and how we got out of it? Meaning, how long do you think we're at? What's the duration of this likely to be? That's a hard question. I, I would say, Bill, that we we are going to be in the thick of it for at least the next six weeks to two months of serious national measures, uh, both to keep us in our homes, to mobilize resources, to to really take steps that reshape the complexion of the country. But the hope would be that those dramatic steps rein in the virus and leave us in a stronger position moving forward. That said, enough officials I've talked to have come to the conclusion this will probably keep circulating throughout the year, and it could come back in a bad way in the fall. So yet again, we might we might be facing similar, if different, problems uh, six months down the road. And then there's the possibility that the coronavirus just starts circulating, much like we have current coronaviruses that circulate and become part mm-hmm. part of. Uh, every, every nation's health system response, maybe it becomes something that's much more controllable. But it's quite possible at this point that this new coronavirus will be with us for years to come. Well, I look forward to the uh, time, uh, and I hope it's soon, Dan, that we can uh, we can get together again and talk about the coronavirus that was, not the coronavirus that is. Here's, thanks so much for your time. Here's hoping, Bill, and thanks, thanks for having us. And that's it for today's podcast. For the Bill Press Pod, thanks to Dan Diamond. Thanks to all of you for joining us. And please, if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the Bill Press Pod. Just wherever you're listening to this podcast, search the Bill Press Pod, click on subscribe, and you are in. And we also ask you, tell your friends to do the same. They may uh, hopefully like the podcast as much as you do and join us every week. In the meantime, stay safe. 
stay strong, wash your hands, don't shake hands, keep your distance from uh, people, particularly those you don't know. Remember, no gatherings of more than 10. We'll get through this, and we'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Podcast.